Welcome to Hiawatha. And uh, before I start, I just wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to my mother, who's sitting here. So, Happy Mother's Day. I love you. Uh, I am Jesse. I am obviously not Chris Walker or Spencer Peterson, who usually preach on Sundays. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and one of the privileges of being an elder at Hiawatha is getting to preach about once a year. So, I'm pleased that I get to do that this morning. And we'll jump right into it. We are currently, I guess not in the middle anymore, slowly approaching the end of a series in Matthew. And we're currently in a part called Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. So this is a section where Jesus is still kind of traveling around, doing a lot of preaching and a lot of healing, and uh, just proclaiming with words and deeds who he is and what he's come to do. And at the same time, has a group of core followers, his disciples and apostles that he's leading around and teaching various things, and they're not getting most of it. They're pretty thick-headed, but that's encouraging for me when I'm thick-headed. So, All right, today's sermon is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And the title is King's Ransom, which hopefully will become apparent why that is as I preach. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak through me what each of us needs to hear, including me, this morning. Uh, Jesus, thank you for ransoming us. Amen. Matthew 20, 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so we're going to start at the beginning which makes sense, work our way through the end. And we're going to start by focusing on this phrase, going up to Jerusalem. You see that in the beginning of 17 and the beginning of 18. And so first, 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And these are the kinds of lines that seem kind of like throwaway little descriptors of what's happening, but this is actually uh, fairly significant. Just the fact that here's Jesus, preaching this gospel, he's getting a lot of opposition from the Jewish rulers, the religious rulers of the time. Um, 
But you see here that Jesus is totally in control of what's going on. That he's made the choice to go to Jerusalem and he's headed that way. And he knows that going to Jerusalem is going to his death. And that's the path that he's choosing. He's choosing to walk that path. It doesn't say, and as Jesus was arrested by the Roman authorities and dragged off to Jerusalem. Or it doesn't say, as Jesus' apostles dragged him kicking and screaming and whining up to Jerusalem when he wanted to go somewhere else. Jesus is the one who made that choice. Jesus said, you know, all right, I've taken this time to do these things, and now it's time to head to Jerusalem. And not next week, but the week after, he'll actually arrive in Jerusalem, and then the rest of Matthew basically is the last week of Jesus' life. And you see um, very powerfully just what it meant for him to make that choice and go to Jerusalem. But he's resolute. He's not being forced. He's not being coerced. And then 18... He shares that info with the twelve. He takes them aside and says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. They had spent a lot of time traveling around, so just because they were on this road headed in the direction of Jerusalem, that didn't necessarily mean the apostles knew they were going there. Maybe they were going to another town on the way, and we'll see next week they do stop at another town on the way. But he shares that information. He wants them to know this is the path that we're going on. This is the direction that I'm moving. This is what's coming next. He's going up to Jerusalem. And then he uses this phrase, son of man, which we've seen about a dozen times so far in Matthew. And uh, when he said that phrase, for a Jewish audience, that would have very specific connotations. And especially the combination of going to Jerusalem and calling himself the son of man, that would mean very specific things to people at this time. And you see son of man a couple times in the Old Testament. Primarily, it's in Daniel 7. We're going to look at those verses for just a minute. Uh, We've talked about this before, but just as a refresher for those of us who don't remember, and maybe for the first time for some of you who are visiting and haven't heard this or weren't paying attention when it was said before. Um, But yeah, we're going to look at these verses just real briefly, and that's going to give us a little context for... uh, what Jesus' apostles and probably most of his followers would have been thinking is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. So Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is God the Father, seated on his throne, and was presented before him. And to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and its kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that's what they have in mind. So Jesus says we're going to Jerusalem, and the apostles are thinking, this is great. This is great. The Son of Man is coming. We're going to go up, and we're going to overthrow the Roman government. We're going to get out from under Roman rule. We're going to get our land back that God promised to Abraham back in the day. We're not going to be oppressed by this uh, pagan foreign system anymore. We're going to get all this back. And Jesus, look at all the power he's shown, the miracles he's performed. He's raised people from the dead. He has this teaching that people follow and are kind of being swept up in. This is going to be great. And we're like we're his inner circle. This is going to be great for us too. We're going to share in this rule. We're going to share in this power. This is wonderful. And then Jesus says the rest of verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. 
And he says that, and probably all of a sudden the disciples are thinking, could you go through that again? I don't understand. How, wait, the Son of Man is going to die? The Son of Man is going to be given into the hands of his enemies? The Son of Man is going to endure torture and mocking and a death being crucified, hung on a tree. In the Old Testament, God says, anyone who dies hung on a tree is cursed. How can the Son of Man, the one that comes into God's presence and is basically invited to come up on God's throne and share in his rule, how can he be cursed? They had the picture of the Son of Man as a king seated on his throne in glory, not the picture of a man hanging on a cross, dying like a criminal. How can one delivered to his enemies have dominion? How can one have an everlasting kingdom when he's dead? How can a mocked, flogged, cursed man have glory and be served by people? Their idea of the Son of Man and what Jesus says is going to happen are completely incompatible with each other. And then the end of 19... So that's not the end, the mocking, the flogging, and the crucified. He will be raised on the third day. So there's some hope in that statement, but for them probably a lot of bewilderment too. A lot of what's going on. I don't get this. So there's that statement. They're on their way. Then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee were James and John. Peter, James, and John were kind of Jesus' inner circle, if you want to call it that, the three disciples who were closest to him. So two of those, they bring their mother to Jesus. She comes up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asks him for something. And he says to her, what do you want? She says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Notice in 20 what she does when she comes up to him. She kneels before him. She pays him homage. She treats him like a king. She also has, to some degree, that son of man idea in mind of, okay, this is the guy who's going to head up to Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to be king. And so she comes, she kneels before him like a king and makes this request of him. At first glance, that request in some ways seems way out of line. Like, it kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, it's a mother. She cares about her sons. She wants the best for her sons. And so she goes to Jesus and asks that. But it's like, really? Just out of the blue to say, okay, when you, you, know, when you go up there and you get your kingdom, I want my sons to be at your right and your left. I want them to have the highest positions, the best seats in the house, as it were. But... This request is not actually completely out of place, considering what Jesus has said before. In Matthew 19, uh, Jesus is talking to the rich young man, and basically the rich young man rejects what Jesus has said. Jesus says, uh, in response to that, uh, you know, it's hard for people to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's impossible apart from God, and this guy couldn't give up his wealth for me. And then Peter says in reply, verse 27, to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in this context, uh, the Zebedee son's mother's request makes a little more sense because Jesus has already said to the 12, okay, there's going to be a new world. I'm going to sit on my glorious throne. There is going to be this idea of reign and rule in some way like you think of when you think son of man. And in that, you 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones with me. So their mother's probably thinking, okay, well, I know they're going to get a throne out of the 12. I just want to make sure they get the best two. I mean, the other guys will still get a throne. It's not like they'll be sitting outside the throne room or something. But my son should have the best throne. So, again, this idea of a new world, uh, they do not have in mind what Christ has in mind. They're still thinking physical. They're still thinking overthrowing the Romans. They're still thinking getting back the land that they lost to their enemies. They're still thinking in the physical realm. They do not have in mind the idea that Jesus is bringing a better new world. He's bringing a better new world than what they have in mind. He's going to bring new hearts, not just new buildings and restored structures. He's going to bring an expanded population. He's going to bring in the Gentiles into the kingdom the kingdom which was once just for the Jews is now going to be available to anyone who wants to enter it uh, instead of expanding physical land and borders. So Jesus has in mind a spiritual kingdom that's coming in. The disciples and uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee and most of the people following Jesus still have in mind this idea of a physical kingdom. When they hear the new world, they think Jerusalem restored to its glory, Israel restored to its kingdom. They don't think Jesus Christ dying on a cross and through that bringing transformation of people's hearts and reconciling people to God. That's not in their mind. And that's amplified. He uses the phrase Son of Man again in 28. So that would just reinforce that for them, that idea of, okay, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to take care of this. This is going to be great. So she makes this request. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right, one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answers, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They have in mind an idea of glory, and of power and of sharing and reign and rule, they do not have in mind the idea of suffering and death and sharing in that. So this phrase that Jesus uses here, the cup that I am to drink, again is a phrase that would have been pretty commonly understood at that time by the people hearing it, probably a little less so to us. So we're going to uh, pause in the text here for a minute. And we're going to look at some different passages in the Old Testament and talk a little bit about when Jesus says, the cup that I am to drink, what does that mean? And it can mean a couple different things. The cup uh, that people drink in the Old Testament from God either means blessing or punishment, depending on the context. You've got things like Psalm 23, where David says that the Lord prepares a table and has a cup there that overflows with blessing. And then you've got other passages where they talk about drinking the cup of God's wrath, which... That is not the cup you want to drink. Very bad, which we'll see in a minute. And Jesus, as he's talking, is talking about the cup of God's wrath. So we're going to look at two references. First, Jeremiah 25. And this is uh, God talking to Jeremiah, who's going to go prophesy to some different nations 
who have rejected God and been against him, and God's going to judge them. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more. This is metaphorical. Jeremiah did not literally carry around a cup of some kind of poison or really strong alcohol and force people to drink it, and then they got drunk and started puking and then fell over and didn't rise anymore. But the metaphor here is the metaphor of alcohol poisoning, not just of having too much to drink and gain, drunk and kind of losing control, but that last line there, falling and rising no more. What's that a picture of? What's a person who falls and doesn't rise anymore? A person who's dead. That's the picture of the cup of God's wrath in this, that you drink it, and as you drink the cup of God's wrath, just like if you have too much alcohol and you start vomiting because your body's rejecting it and it's trying to get rid of it before it kills you, that same idea, you're drinking in God's wrath and you can't get rid of it, and then in the end it just kills you. Isaiah 51, also talking about the cup of God's wrath. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The dregs there is the last remaining part. Like if you have a cup of a liquid that has some sediment in it, once you've drunk all the liquid, the little sediment that remains on the bottom, that's the dregs. Basically the idea of the last remaining part. So this isn't a cup that you can just take a sip or even just take a big gulp. You drink the whole thing. Every single drop in that cup gets drunk. Jesus Christ drank every single drop of the cup of God's wrath for us. Every single drop. So what did that cup look like for Jesus? Obviously at Jesus' trial and crucifixion, they didn't just give him alcohol until he got drunk and fell over and died of alcohol poisoning. The cup of God's wrath, in Jesus' case, it looked like being delivered over to his enemies both to his Jewish enemies and then to the Romans. It looked like being condemned, being mocked, being flogged. And it talks in Isaiah prophesying about Jesus being flogged and beaten. It says he was beaten so badly that if you looked at him, you couldn't recognize that he was human. Not just that he was bruised or cut, but you couldn't recognize that he looked human. He was beaten so badly. It looks like being cursed because he's hung on a tree and then being crucified, dying. That is what the cup of, wrath, of God's wrath looked like for Jesus to drink. That is what Jesus took that should have been handed out to you and me. You do not know what you are asking. Can you imagine having a clear understanding of that and saying, oh yeah, that sounds good, I want to share in that. You know, I'm free next Friday, that'll work. Oh no. And what's the response? We are able. We are able to drink your cup. And then Jesus' response to that is really interesting because he doesn't say, no, you're not going to drink it, you can't drink that cup. Or, no, this is a foolish question. His response, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. 
you will drink my cup. James and John are the sons of Zebedee, and we can see throughout the rest of the New Testament that they did drink to some degree that cup. Now, no one else, none of those who followed Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. They didn't drink of God's wrath. Just like for those of us in the room who are believers, like for me, I will never drink the cup of God's wrath because Christ drank it in my place. But the cup of God's wrath for Christ looked like suffering and death. And when we follow Christ, we share in suffering and death. Now, we're not sharing in that as a result of God's divine judgment on us. We share in that in other things, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So there's a little bit of a nuance there because I am not paying the cost of God's wrath for myself. That's not possible. Christ did that. But I am sharing in the suffering of Christ and in the death of Christ, both in non-literal, non-physical terms, those deaths that we die to ourselves every day in hundreds of ways, and eventually physical death, um, whether through martyrdom or in my sleep of old age or something in between. But James and John did endure this. Uh, they both had various times throughout Acts and some of the letters in the New Testament where they were handed over to their enemies. They were mocked. They were flogged and beaten, not quite as severely as Christ was, but they endured that. Uh, they were, people cursed them. James physically was killed in Acts 12. He was the first of the 12 uh, to die and the only one recorded in Scripture. The rest we have from early Christian history. But Acts 12 says James was uh, beheaded on the orders of the emperor. So he shared not just in the suffering of Christ, but the death of Christ. And then the apostle John, who was the last to die, and actually the only one of the 12 who was not martyred. He died just a normal death. Uh, but he suffered all those other things. And then at the end of his life, he suffered exile basically from the world. He was exiled from the Roman world to an island and forced to live out the rest of his life there. So James and John shared in the suffering of Christ. James, as recorded in Scripture, shared in the death of Christ, and John eventually did die, and so in a different way shared in that. So they did not endure God's wrath. They did not die for the sins of the world. They did not suffer to bring salvation to people but they shared in Christ's suffering and Christ's death in a small way. And then the other ten got wind of it. And when the ten heard what had happened, they were indignant at the two brothers. Probably a little bit of understatement in that sentence. Can you imagine that conversation? Like, you want to criticize them, but at the same time, you know, they brought their mom. So you don't just want to start tearing apart their mom. Like, you talking about my mama? But it's like, dudes, what are you doing? What, you just bring your mom to Jesus and ask for that? That's just low. You can't do that. What's going on? That's not right. But they weren't angry because they thought it was this unrighteous thing. Like, no, we're going to share in Christ's suffering and death first and then in his glory. No, they were angry because they didn't think of it first. Because they all wanted the same thing. They were angry because it's like, oh no, they got there first and they brought their mom. How do I compete with their mom? Like, what do I do? I can't just bring myself. Jesus knows all the wrong answers I've given already and how I don't really get stuff. This won't work. So they were angry because James and John beat them to the punch. And this shows that James and John and their mother 
and the ten here were still thinking that Matthew 19 language. They were still thinking the new world's coming, the Son of Man is going to sit on his glorious throne, and we're going to sit on thrones with him and share in that glory. They still are not thinking Matthew 20, 17 through 19. They're still not thinking suffering. They're not thinking death. And they're not thinking that, yes, resurrection comes after that, and eventually those other things come, but it comes through death and suffering. So they're indignant at the two brothers. There's some conflict going on there. So Jesus is going to diffuse the situation and deal with it and use it, as he always does, as a teachable moment to show how, you know, you shouldn't be indignant with them because you guys are thinking the same thing. They just got there first. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So a couple things happen in this passage. Jesus completely flips on uh, its head, their idea of what it means to have authority and to rule, not as uh, an image of lording it over people, taking advantage of it, uh, of exercising authority over people, but as serving. It's like, okay, you want to be great? That doesn't mean you like climb the ladder of power, get up there, and then exercise that power over people and say, all right, you go do this, and you go do that, and you do this for me, and where's my food? It's the opposite, that to be great, you serve. And you're the one saying, what can I go and do for you? What can I go and do for you? Can I get you your food? The opposite of what they were thinking. And again in 28, that phrase, Son of Man. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man, the one who's brought into the presence of God, ascends his throne and shares in his reign, came not to sit on that throne and exercise that reign over people, but stepped off of that throne, came down to earth, and served people. The Son of Man, the one with an everlasting dominion, an indestructible kingdom and glory, the one most worthy of being served, the one person in history, Jesus Christ, more than anyone else who had the right to say, serve me, who is completely worthy of that, is the one who chose to serve. The one with the most right to lord rule over others became a servant. The one with the most right to exercise authority over people became a slave. So this naturally leads to the question, all right, Jesus came to serve. What does that service look like? Because he says to them, it shall not be so among you. So he says, this is what it's supposed to be like for you. You're not supposed to exercise this authority. You're supposed to serve. So it seems fitting to ask what that service looks like. could be helpful for us. Jesus served in a lot of ways when he was on earth. Uh, but to look at the primary way he served, first we'll ask, who did Jesus serve primarily? Because if he wasn't exercising that authority he was serving, he was serving someone, right? A servant is someone who serves someone. If I walk out 
and I'm walking around outside today and I see someone dressed up in a suit looking like a butler with a tray and some dishes on it. I say, hey, what are you doing outside with that? He's like, oh, I'm serving. Oh, who? Oh, no one. I'm just, you know, waiting around. Maybe someone will come by or something. He's like, well, you're not really a servant. You might become one if someone comes by, but you're just standing around looking awkward. So who did Jesus serve? Primarily, Jesus did not come to serve people in general. Primarily, he did not serve the twelve or his apostles. He primarily served God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I always do the will of my Father. I always follow what my Father says. So primarily, as Jesus came, he was serving God. Now, he did that by serving people, certainly by doing things for them. But the primary one that Jesus was serving was not people, it was God. It was God who loved the world, God who sent Christ to save the world, and Jesus served God by doing that. So, with that in mind, how did Jesus serve? The primary way Jesus served was to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave is the greatest act of service that anyone will ever do in all of history. It is the ultimate act of service. It is the ultimate act of someone with power and authority giving that up, making themselves nothing, putting themselves under the power and authority of others and serving. We see throughout Jesus' ministry, as he heals physically, as he teaches with authority, as he treats people with love and kindness for some of them in ways they had never experienced before from other people, we see that all these acts of service, with a small s, point back to the act of service, capital S, of Jesus dying on the cross. A really clear example, I don't have this up on the screen, but uh, there's a point where Jesus is healing people, and a crippled person is brought to Jesus and laid at his feet. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? And then Jesus does heal him physically. And as he's about to heal him, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. So Jesus does that physical healing to point to the bigger spiritual healing. He says, I'm going to heal you physically right now. You're going to get up and walk out of here, even though your legs don't work right now. And I'm doing that to show you that I can reach into people's hearts and I can change those hearts. And I can take people who are dead in their sins and make them alive and they can walk out of that spiritual death. That is the primary service that Jesus brought to people, his death and resurrection. Certainly, he cared about people in all those other ways. Certainly, those other acts of service uh, were out of love. But if we look at Jesus' life and we look at this passage and the thing we get out of it is, oh, well, Jesus came to serve, uh, so I should just serve people. I should be nice to people. I should do think, think of people first rather than thinking of myself first. If we're just doing that in our own power, that's not service, ultimately. It kind of is. But ultimately, you're doing that for yourself, not for other people. Ultimately, this passage calls us to look at Christ who gave his life as a ransom, say, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I can drink the cup of God's wrath and not die. And to say, but I don't need to, because Christ did that for me. And I'll accept that he did that for me. So... Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. We're going to look real quickly at 
the size of that ransom, the cost of that ransom. Psalm 49. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The ransom of their life is costly. So the passage in Psalms here says, it's not possible to ransom another person's life. The cost is too high. can't be done. A few weeks ago, uh, a parable was preached on about a man who owes a king a bunch of money. And the king wants to collect that debt and says, pay me what you owe me. And the man says, well, I don't have the money, but give me a little time and I'll have the money for you. And the amount of money he owed was 10,000 talents, which it's like, oh, that sounds like a lot, but I don't know what that means because I use dollars, not talents. 10,000 talents in terms of working that off, so having a typical, the wage of a typical working person at that time and saying, okay, I'm just going to work, and I'll work real hard and pay it off. 160,000 years of service to pay that debt. Obviously, that's not a debt you're going to be able to repay. 160,000 years of debt, that's what you owe God, and even more than that. Drinking the wine of the cup of God's wrath, that's what's owed to God for sin. And we can't do that, because what's the result of that we saw in Jeremiah? You drink that, and you lay down, and you die. It can't be done. It can't be ransomed. There's a part where Jesus is talking to the apostles and basically makes the point that people can't do that. And they say, well, then who can be saved? If we can't do this, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Can't be done. But with God, all things are possible. Through the cross, that which is impossible is done. Jesus Christ paid the ransom that no one else could pay. He paid the ransom that we couldn't pay for ourselves. He paid the ransom that we can't pay for the people we love and care about. 1 Peter 1, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, from sin, from opposition to God, from being God's enemy, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter talks in this passage about things like gold and silver is perishable, which is interesting. Like, I usually think of that as something that lasts. Like, okay, I've got this dollar bill. It's made of paper. Eventually, it'll decompose and break down. But if I have, like, gold coins, those won't last forever, but they'll last a lot longer. That, that's pretty stable. They'll last pretty long. But the blood of Jesus Christ is a better payment. It's a payment that happened one time and is good for all eternity. Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. He shed his blood to pay the price that we can't pay ourselves. Like a lamb without blemish or spot, the one person on earth who has lived who didn't deserve punishment, who didn't deserve death, is the one who took it freely. That service like you'll never see anywhere else. So where does this leave us? In conclusion, remember that Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to ransom you. He wasn't forced. He wasn't tricked. He chose to go there to ransom you. Drinking, as Revelation says when it talks about uh, God's wrath, Jesus Christ drank the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger.
When Jesus hung on the cross and died, that's what he endured. Obviously, he had the physical suffering of crucifixion, the emotional and mental trauma. But even beyond that, and those things were certainly horrible, was to face spiritually the wrath of God. To drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Thank God that we will never have to drink that. And as you remember that, then the question, which cup will you drink? God holds out two cups to you, the cup of wrath and the cup of Christ. And everyone drinks from one or the other. You can't say, well, I won't drink. The Jeremiah passage, part of it that we didn't read, he says, you know, go to them. And Jeremiah's like, well, what if they won't drink? And he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but basically he says, I'm God. Tell them they're going to drink and they're going to drink it. If God says you're going to drink from one of the cups, you're going to drink from one of the cups. So which cup are you going to drink from? Are you going to say, well, this is a great passage. I like how Jesus kind of teaches us how to serve and how to be you know, more humble and treat people better. I'll kind of do that, and as I do that, I'll you know, earn some of what I owe God to pay off that debt. He'll look at me a little better because at least I'm a better person than this other person who's not serving people at all. At least I'm better than the person I'm serving who's just letting me serve him instead of serving someone. But if you're thinking like that, then your hand is moving towards the cup of God's wrath. Because we can't pay that debt ourselves. It's infinite. 160,000 years of service. Can't be done. Or, will you take the cup of Christ that is held out? The cup that says, Jesus, I owe a debt that I can never pay. There's a cup waiting for me that I can't drink. But I don't need to, because you paid that debt for me, and you drank that cup in my place. You drink every last drop. I don't have to worry that someday God will come back to me and say, well, there were like these five drops left that Je- when Jesus drank for you. So you got to drink those. Nope, he drank it all. Everything. There's nothing left to do. Will you take that cup, the cup that says, Jesus, thank you for doing for me what I couldn't do myself. The cup that says, I believe that you died in my place. I believe that you reconciled me to God when no one else could. I believe that you gave your life as a ransom for me. Not just for people in general, not just for someone out there, but for me, who didn't deserve it. You brought me out of sin and out of death. And in that, we share in Christ's sufferings. Paul says, I delight in sharing in the sufferings of Christ because that means that I'll also share in the resurrection of Christ. Just as Christ suffered and died, but that wasn't the end, he was raised from the dead. So too, those who follow him and believe in him, they share in his sufferings, but then at the end, we'll share in his resurrection as well. We'll share in that glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing what we could not. Thank you for paying the price that we couldn't pay. Thank you for giving a king's ransom for us. For giving yourself, the one who least deserved to die in all of history. Enduring what you endured. I pray, God, for those of us in the room who follow you, that we would rejoice in the fact that we do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. That we'd rejoice in the fact that you suffered and died in our place. And I pray that uh, as we go about our lives and think of service, that we would not just try harder to serve better, but that we would look to the cross and be encouraged by what you've done. 
I pray for those here who don't know you, God, that they would think uh, with sober judgment about the cups that you hold out to them and that they would turn to you, God, that they would desire you and be saved. Amen.